Welcome <laughs> to Good to Geek Out. Good place to go to geek out. Uh, here with two, two of my brothers, two originators. Uh, kind of covering something that got us started in the first place with all of this stuff. Mandalorian covering season two, episode one, technically chapter nine in the series. Editor San Antonio. What up, fellas? Let's do this. Rob, Lucy coming at you from Phoenix, Oregon, fresh out of the fire and happy to be here. Uh, also happy to be here with my good friends and brothers from another mother's and excited to talk about The Mandalorian. Hello, this is Boba Fresh reporting to you live from San Francisco. What we will bring to you today will shock and amaze you as we dive deep into the lore of George Lucas's creation, Disney's property, and our universe, The Mandalorian. Wow. All right. Uh, chapter nine, The Marshal. Um, oh, wow. Uh, it starts off pretty badass, right? Walking. It's no different than anything from season one. Walking in somewhere, not sure if he's going to get out looking for information or looking for something. Um, right off the bat, we get to see some Gamorrean guards fighting. You never see them move, ever. They just look tough and stand around, and they're fighting each other. Their axes apparently have some kind of sonic amplifier cutting through the air. I don't know what's going on. Uh, what do you guys think about the intro right into the fight? I thought it was um, dope. Um, <laughs> let me see. Um, I believe that when the opening scrawl had finally passed by and we enter the cinematic landscape, I got the feel of Spaghetti Western being recalled as perhaps a few dollars more type uh, feel of the man with no name coming into town. And I really savored the flavor of how rough and dirty this town was, as opposed to our um, overly cluttered Coruscant's or our dusty back alley Tatooine Mos Eisley bars. This place had a more urban, broke down feel with graffiti lining the walls, some of them political, it would seem. Um, some of them droid-based, some of them seemed like clones or something. And, and I feel that the way the atmosphere was set prior to them entering the establishment with oh, all of this action all of a sudden taking place, Gamorrean guards with, those were called vibro-axes, and they vibrate at a high frequency see that theoretically cuts between molecules. Uh, they apparently had some form of personal protective shields around them that, that uh, deflected the dangerous blades from piercing their green Gamorrean hides. I was entertained. Lucy, you want to follow that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it real. Uh, just walking down the street there, uh, I thought it was very Blade Runner-esque, uh, or if you're talking Coruscant, like the lower, lower levels of Coruscant. Um, almost like a dysopian, obviously post-Empire uh, uh, universe or galaxy where you have the 
the stormtroopers and the clones, their faces are clo- uh, crossed out. Really did enjoy, you know, the, the graffiti that they put on the wall. Um, you know, interesting uh, observation that I had when he talked to, I have a mic, uh, Gore Koresh, um, when he asks, uh, like, I don't think this is any place for a child. And then uh, uh, the man, Mandalorian goes, he goes where I go. And he goes, I've, so I've heard. So his reputation is definitely out there, which plays out later in, uh, in, in some episodes, I'm sure. Um, and, but just, you know, the, the, uh, the whistling birds come out again, yes. you know, and, and he had mentioned, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't take chances with his bets. So, you know, he gave the guy the opportunity. He knew he was probably being set up for an ambush. Um, but he uh, went in anyway because he's so hungry for that information. Lucy, well, you, know, heard, you know who the voice of Gore Koresh was? I've heard it. You remind me, Ed, please, and our viewers. Uh, the Freak, right? Was that his movie that did shit? The Freak. Uh, you're John Leguizamo, I believe, is who you're, you're, you're thinking. Oh, uh, the, you violator, the Violator from Spawn. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yes. John Leguizamo, The Violator from Spawn. Cheer- hey, uh, what, Ted, John Leguizamo. Yeah. I really do like John Leguizamo. Some very iconic roles. Um, I think that the way that they nailed it was dope. The way that Gore had set up the, hey, let's make this bet. I bet this guy doesn't make it the next minute and then shoots him. Uh, shows the way that uh, he doesn't take chances with the odds always being something that he's calculating in his favor. And in some way, we see that Mando is doing the same thing. Um, Manda walks into these places and we're, and we're always like, why do you have the kid with you? But then you're like, well, where, where else is he going to leave the kid though? You know, that's, that's a safe place. And so um, when he says the kid should, uh, this isn't a place for a kid. And he's like, well, the kid's seen worse. And then we just think about all of last season. Yeah. <laughs> we're just like, uh, one of the interesting things that I did think also with that interaction was um, when he was like, your best car steals become so much harder to find since you Mandalorians have gone into hiding. And so he's implied that he's like taken best car armor from other people. And so I'm surprised that at the end when he makes the deal to let him live, um, but leads into the elements as it were, which was super dope. It reminds me of the Simpsons. Uh, for insurance purposes, the ocean will kill you, not us. Um, but why he didn't um, interrogate him more in regards to the armor that he got or punish him specifically for uh, attacking Mandalorians. Ed, what do you think about that? I mean, I I like the the poetic way he was describing taking the Beskar from him, like almost like he was a sheep for his wool or almost like the reverse of a crab. You know what I mean? Like you want what's inside the crab, not the shell. But the way he said, peel it off you, like, it's just, ah, I don't know. It it, it gave me like a different um, interpretation of the way they look at a Mandalorian. You think a Mandalorian walks in the room and they're like, oh, this guy's gonna, or this Mandalorian's gonna kill somebody or he's here for business or whatever. This is the other, like another insight of the way people look at them is like, oh, I'm gonna rob this guy and just, make some money off his carcass not his carcass but the shell that has you know that's around him i I do also think it's a testament to this episode that we haven't even got to the opening credits yet and we've been talking about it for five minutes it was a hot cold open sure Mm. was just like snl (laughs) so back to tatooine our uh 
our, our first revisit in, sec- in, in the second season to a character or an ally from the first season. Um, I thought it was nice. And it also showed, I, I thought, was, which was kind of poignant, after, um, uh, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the uh, assassin, or the bounty hunter droids um, distinction, but he's gone soft on the droids. He's like, ah, it's okay. Let the droids work on my ship. I thought that was, you know, a, a big change for the Mandalorian, where the whole first season, until uh, the bounty hunter droids, you know, saves him, uh, and uh, you know, like, hey, let's get some information. Now we have a secret city or a secret mining camp on Tatooine, and uh, we we move forward. It was a, just a nice little revisit from that first uh, first episode or first season. I agree with you. I think that showing. Like, how do people grow? Now, obviously, like in this arc, you want him to grow. And so one way to show it is that he's obviously become, you know, close with the child. But in this Western, uh, in the parallel of the whole Western concept, obviously, our droids are stand in for either Native Americans or perhaps uh, Blacks or Mexicans or whatever would have been in the John Wayne genre of the people that we end up working with and we really rub elbows and we're gonna be able to and they're not that bad of people so him showing like this acceptance of droids like oh like don't go work on his ship he's gonna beat you um and so like he kind of grows past that and that is a beautiful foreshadowing to the unity that ends up becoming such a linchpin in the story later of people who were opposed to each other working together for a greater cause Mm. yep and i agree that was like that's one thing that was in my notes too it's just uh um i've been watching a lot of queer eye that's new on netflix um not by i mean by choice slightly uh but a lot of the ways that people who are like stuck in their ways the way they show growth are like the most subtle almost asinine things and like for him to just be like, no, that's okay. Go ahead. The ship needs a, a once over anyway. It doesn't mean anything. It's nothing really. But in, in terms of the character and like who he is, those little things do mean a lot. And it shows a lot. And it's just, you know, every character arc doesn't have to be this grand change. Like the, sometimes the most subtle things have more impact than these big changes. And like, I think not only was it a good foreshadowing, which I didn't think about Strader until you said it, but it, it's also just an acknowledgement that season one didn't happen for nothing. Like this is not the same guy from episode one, season one, this is season two, episode one, but it's a different guy. And you know, that's one great way uh, to show it. Um, not being racist is a pretty big change. Like, like his arc <laughs> is that he's no longer racist. And that is a pretty, significant switch in a character's uh, profile. All right, so back to uh, Ripley Simmons. That's what I call her. Pelly Motto, I think. We used to call her Ripley Simmons in season one. She looks like Ripley from Aliens and Richard Simmons if they had a kid together. Um, So most Pelgo is uh, where um, Jin Jardin's uh, information leads him. He leaves the baby, of course, with her. And you get to this Western town, and man, you want to talk about Spaghetti Western 101. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, go ahead. You guys talk about that before the Crate Dragon. 
It was the first time that I was like, these sets look cheap. <laughs> and, and of course, like, that's what they're hitting on. They're hitting on that, you know, just this shabbily, quickly, hastily you know, constructed pod town. Uh, but yeah, they do a great job with like, this is the main street and there are no side streets. <laughs> and this is what, uh, this is how everything happens. And so, um, yeah, everything up into the walk into the saloon, I thought it was a great callback to uh, shots and cinema from Spaghetti Westerns. I agree with you. Yeah, so I, I was watching it, uh, and I tried to stay away from some of the uh, the trailers and some of the prequels and some of the chatter, um, but like anticipating Boba Fett come in, and as soon as that guy, you know, he opens up the the swinging doors and walks in with the, with the sun behind him a little bit. And you're like, is this going to be Boba Fett? He takes a couple steps and you're like, eh, it's not Boba Fett. And then they, you know, they walk and they sit down at the table. Then he takes off the helmet and you're like, Oh, you know, this guy's not a Mandalorian. What's going on here. And um, uh, as uh, uh, Rob likes to put it, he has that like X, uh, Machiana moment where the crate dragon basically saves the marshal's life by rolling through town and they all stop and it's like yeah we can make a deal um oh, but great and great intro uh to that character and a great character yeah i do have a, i do have a few issues with him but uh i mean, I, I like i like the way the armor didn't sit right on him so you immediately right, yeah it wasn't Boba Fett and the way it always kind of sits off. It's almost like, you know, your little brother wearing your sweatshirt. You know what I mean? Like it, he never looks like the tough guy that Mando is. And you always get that like juxtaposition and you know what Boba Fett looks like in the armor. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I thought he really hearkened to, um, to like a Clint Eastwood style, like, like draw, like the gun hanging down at the side, hip cocked over, um, and, and obviously, I think that was the look that they were going for. Um, and you know, wonderful character. My only problem with that character was, you know, he gets the armor after the mining consortium comes back. And, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit. And does the armor automatically make him like an amazing fighter where he can take out like a squad of thugs from the, 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 the mining consortium? And he knows how to use this rocket intuitively. Is that how good this armor is? My one issue with the entire the entire episode. But. Maybe the helmet you have some kind of interface. I don't know. Yeah, the helmet does have a interface. You actually see the interface happen when he uh, oh when it lowers in on the uh, thing. I agree. I assume that it's just like anyone picking up an iPhone and being like, well, like I don't have to like know how to download every app to. <laughs> To, to to shoot a flamethrower like this is the flamethrower app right here like okay boom boom got it uh also shout out to the crate dragons uh lore in star wars oh yeah um, it is the skeleton from star wars the first movie that they see in the desert when they're walking when uh, r2 and c3po are walking along did you know it's also the scream that obi-wan makes before you first see him and that is the most um changed noise george lucas has made through every iteration when he revamps it that is the one thing he has changed the most is the sound of the crate dragon screaming hmm. um one one point of interest i thought was really cool as far as an easter egg goes is uh, the marshall's um speeder the engine 
looks identical to Anakin Skywalker's uh, Speed Racer engine. Correct. Tatooine. And it's on Tatooine. Yeah. Uh, I thought that Tatooine seems to be the really. It's not Coruscant. Tatooine has to be the center of the the Star Wars galaxy. The pod racer annoyed me. And not the design, not the concept of it, the fact that it looks so close to Anakin's. And in, in a universe, this show has been so good about not forcing coincidences like the Clone Wars did. Like every Clone Wars, episode, like, I've got a bad feeling about this. Like every Clone Wars episode had to have like someone do something from the show. Like someone had to know someone from the movie. Like they were so obsessed with tying things in with uh with canon and this is the first thing that i felt was beyond fan service and was kind of like like oh by the way you're on tatooine this huge a huge planet huge planet <laughs> and this one guy who has boba fett's armor which is coincidence enough that's coincidence enough also happens to have the pod racer engine like like that it was like i said it was the first time for me that they pushed the bar on on cheapening the lore with 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 fan service uh so tuscan raiders don't call them sand people that's racist tuscan raiders um man they get a face the real well not literally but they (laughs) metaphorically get a face i mean there's so many things little things that they do uh, the way they like protect each other, the way they care for their animals, uh, their concern for like just you know history. They have language, they have emotions. You can see, and they're always delegated to this like you know like like you said, Strader, like this third party uh, savage uh, quote unquote. You know, and they're not, and, and they they deliberately make you see who they are. It was beautifully done from the. Uh, initial ambush in the canyon, which is a great scene. I, I mean, the show is always great with the, uh, the the settings and the scenes that they decide to pick in, but but I thought that, that was phenomenal. It was cool that they used this old Mastiff uh, from uh, the old episodes with uh, Anakin, and they kept the bad CGI kind of look to them. Like, they're the first things that also were CGI that would, like, look lumpy, like, yeah. look to... Um, so it's funny that they kind of kept that consistency, but as soon as he like, he starts speaking and, and, you know, just like that interaction and that tension, this show does that so well. Uh, I thought it was uh, a, a great scene to develop. And when they go back to the camp and, you know, they're exchanging, uh, you know, he- their customs and their strange ways. And you gotta, you gotta drink this, you know, yeah. like to have a, a, to, to manifest a MacGuffin, a symbol of a, uh, of them understanding and accepting each other. Yeah, like, like, it was great writing. And, and you know, that you, you see him later drinking that, like right before they're about to attack, he's not even thinking about it. He's just sipping mm-hmm. it like it's nothing. Right. No. no. Yeah, it shows some acceptance of each other's cultures at that point in time, yep. mm-hmm. for sure. What is it when you got to move a story along really quick and use music? The montage was montage. amazing. Yeah, so you montage was amazing. <laughs> you get a quick montage of them packing up, doing everything, uh, a little scuffle in between because the tensions are high. But I don't know if you guys noticed, as soon uh, it's at the four, a little bit after the forty minute mark, 
as soon as the fight's about to start and they have all of the explosive planted and they bring the crate dragon out, it goes to 16 by nine letterbox. It goes full screen. And then you can mm-hmm. see the dragon, you see everything. And it, I didn't realize it until I think the third time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it really, it really does capture the, the, the whole fight and that whole last 15 minutes in a way that it wouldn't have been. I thought it was just really cool that they had the insight the wherewithal to do that and then lucy when you said you know we need to cover this episode separately and it's almost like a movie unto itself like that well, there's scene, there's a distinct three acts to this oh to for this, sure for sure and that's the beginning of the third one right there mm-hmm. well an, an, a, like amazing climax to uh, a, an amazing episode uh the way that they work together uh you know, the crate dragon, they think they're going to beat it. They have it beat. And they're like, no, nah, we don't have a beat. And then obviously with the Mandalorian going inside the belly of the dragon, uh, you know, to, you know, to finish it off. Nope, no and, metaphor, well, the, no metaphor the there. One thing for the crate dragon, which I absolutely love, spitting the acid. So like in lieu, you know, in lieu of fire, they use, they use the acid as the, um, you know, the similar the analogy to the fire, just just watching him melt, you know, the, the uh, melt people in front of him was just just amazing. What what a great what a I was just on the edge of my seat. Yep. I mean, I looked I looked up Dank Ferrick and it meant thank God, possibly in the comic book. But it sounded like the way he used it in this episode was like, God damn. Um, dank Farrick. I got that dank. Um, yeah, I think that the way that they had switched the film, uh, uh, I think that when they switched to the cinematic style, it was the only way that you could truly understand how huge and enormous the crate was, but you also understood how huge and enormous the stakes were for our people, also. We can see the layout of everyone uh, together um, working. And again, you know, phenomenal place with these dunes and everything's just like in this canyon and the way the Cray Dragon swims through the sand and then swims through the stone. And you're like, what? This thing is swimming through stone. Um, Just phenomenal Jaws, uh, Godzilla, you know, whatever uh, analogy. Like we said before in last episode, uh, like we said before in last season, every episode ends up being this homage to some other subgenre within the film. And I do feel like they end up going uh, Jaws or The Meg. If you have not seen The Meg yet, I cannot recommend it enough. I literally watched it three or four times, and I do not watch a lot of movies three or four times. But when you see that dragon collapse in the way Mando just like is barely landing when it hits the floor, like that, ah, man, that's that's I'm getting a little goosebumps thinking about it right now. Um, and I mean, then we just get the Boba Fett reveal, which is kind of anticlimactic to me. Uh, <laughs> no, not for me. Yeah, I don't think it's anticlimactic at all. Take it to school. Great Dragon Pearl, which there's some significance there. Um, but I do think that it was really cool that they ended up uh, doing this 
otherly reveal where not only do the, again, the analogy of the Native Americans to the Tuscan Raiders, like not only do they use every bit of the crate dragon as they harvest its meat and its bones, and you know, like that's where it's, uh, their huts are made out of and, and all these other things, but then they give you the pearl, which shows you this extra reveal. So we're not grossed out like, oh, like look at those like lowly people. Like they have like this item and whether, whatever it ends up being in canon, the fact that they make any kind of gesture and nod to the, the lore is I think really cool. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I had to look something up. I don't look things up too often. I was like, what the fuck is that? No, Boba Fett. I thought I thought Boba Fett watching him ride his speeder bike across the sand was pretty poignant because now we know Boba Fett made it out of the Sarlacc. You know, that that is now canon. It's always been a rumor. Oh, that's, his armor's there. That's true. And it's it's like, did he rock it out of it? Somehow he made it out of the, the out of Sar out of the Sarlacc. And now we know he's officially still alive on Tatooine. Well, you know, I think if it's Boba Fett, and he he Boba Fett would have known the marshal had his armor at some point in time. So he, Boba Fett could have taken the marshal out anytime he wanted and taken his armor back if that's what he wanted to do. Yeah, so that's I, that's, I think, that's obviously an assumption of mine, but no, you make a good point, and I think that that's what the big mystery ends up being out of. Yeah, what you know, did he just go into retirement? Is he is he done? Was he, you know? It's, it's unanswered questions, but that's why we love watching this. Hey, maybe those questions will be answered down the road. Was Boba Fett one of the, because we see that he has a gaffy stick. He has one of the Tuscan gaffy sticks. So was Boba Fett one of the Tuscan Raiders and he was in, in the scene the entire time? Was he hiding out? Uh, and we're going to find out this reveal that, and we're going to look back and be like, oh, that's the guy that was Boba Fett right there, man. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because I remember watching it for the first time and being happy that they didn't uh, use all their tricks at once, so to speak. Um, but now talking about it, it seems like they might have used a few more than they needed to. Uh, close it out. Editor San Antonio, episode two, coming to you soon. Uh, what do we have? Geek out on Facebook. Electrodes, that's the secret, people. That's the future. That is. Um, no. <laughs> Boba Fresh from San Francisco. Great <laughs> hanging out, talking to the people. If you enjoy our material, maybe like it. Maybe subscribe. We don't have a Patreon. We're not asking you for money. This shit's free. <laughs> We're having fun. Come on. Kick in. <laughs> hey, hey, have some fun with us. Uh, I guess like, comment, subscribe. If you guys thought we missed something important, uh, leave it in the comments. Uh, I'm sure one day I'll get around to reading them between work and raising kids and all that other stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, good good to be back with my friends. Looking forward to reviewing episode two just, just next week. Episode two is going to be here. <laughs>